Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Keith, a.k.a. End Big Money Now, and he's coming to us live from the Pacific Northwest. On the show, we talk about socialism, communism, solar punk, and ending big money in politics. Solidarity forever. to us live from Washington State. Welcome to the podcast and big money now. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. All right. So um, we were talking a little bit last few weeks leading up to the podcast. Uh, I got my list out here. Let's talk about solar punk. This is uh, interesting. Where did you hear about solar punk? Um, we talked a little bit earlier. It's kind of the opposite of cyberpunk, the opposite of some dystopian hellscape um, that we all see in, I guess, the video game world and that kind of stuff. What's solar punk all about? Well, solar punk is is about um, it, it's about community and shared resources, shared collaboration. Uh, not rejecting uh, present and future tech, but more in a socialist uh, communal living way where you could you could maybe be a barista one day or a uh, you know a gardener the next day or you know you can you can switch jobs you know, based on what your interests are, what you're good at, what you have experience in. Um, it's, it's shared resources. It's communal living uh, kind of in a socialist way, but also embracing technology and using it to its fullest potential. Rather than cyberpunk where the rich own all the technology and everybody else are is practically unemployed and doggy dog world. Yeah. That's the one thing that, or I mean, there's a million things about capitalism that uh, annoys me, but one of the things that annoys me greatly about it is technology is typically developed in the public sector. Basically what the Pentagon is, is a funnel of taxpayer money to private high-tech industry all under the guise of defense. So things like um, computers, telecommunications, the internet, um, certainly weapons technologies, but surveillance technologies, satellites, um, all these things were um, developed for decades. Uh, Jets, airplanes, 
Um, that's, I guess, one of the biggest um, uh, industries in Seattle, right? Boeing, that's their headquarters, at least it was. I guess maybe it moved to Chicago. Uh, but I think at one time, yeah, the, the Pacific Northwest and Boeing, um, that was their HQ. Um, but yeah, airplanes, that was all, again, all developed by taxpayer dollars for decades. So all the research and development went into into making these technologies, including automation. Um, but when those um, technologies were able to be monetized, um, they were essentially sold off to the highest bidder or given away to people like Bill Gates to make a fortune on. Um, so that's how the public, or that's how the capitalist system works. The public um, finances high-tech industry and art research and development, but then once that technology is lucrative and you can make money on it, uh, that, that goes to the highest bidder, that goes to the rich and powerful, instead of leaving it under um, public control, like maybe... Um, you know, resources like energy, you know, or like a private, or I'm sorry, like a public utility or something along those lines, or a co-op, or even, you know, owned by the government or some sort of, um, you know, regulatory institution, a public institution. Uh, but yeah, I hate how um, the system is structured. I mean, all these technologies are owned by the rich and powerful. They own the information systems. They own the news networks. They own the internet. They own the uh, the social media companies, um, you know, SpaceX putting satellites into space. So they own every aspect of the entire information system and the communication system on the planet. And uh, they make sure that their message gets, um, you know, spread out to the masses, gets propagated. You know, uh, the, the capitalist, um, you know, the capitalist way of living. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they're not done private privatizing everything, uh, you know, Colleges that used to be, you know, we used to have colleges that were nonprofit. Now they're all for profit. They're even trying to sell off, you know, uh, high school and middle school, uh, elementary school. Yeah, charter um, schools now, they're privately owned, right? They still get public funding, but a lot of them are, what, privately owned? Or I'm not sure how the funding breaks yeah. down, but they're essentially well, outside the public system. Yeah, they're outside the public system, but they're funded through taxpayer dollars. And, you know, the $2 trillion student loan debt in America, uh, the United States used to lead the world in public uh, education, the GI Bill, part of the New Deal. Um, but, yeah, all that stuff about affordable education, it's all gone. And I, I always found it, like, kind of silly, like, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade, you know, everyone's, at least most people seem to be on board uh, with public education, but for some reason, people are so propagandized that uh, if you if you want um, free college or grad school or professional training of some kind, they look at you like you're uh, you know Karl Marx, you know the, the ghosts of Karl Marx or something along those lines. Uh, and that's kind of what you're talking about with this um, solar punk is you know people have interests, different interests, and sometimes over the course of your life, your interests change. But it's so difficult to get an education. It's so expensive in this country. Not maybe in, in other countries, not so expensive. But here, it can cost you a fortune. Maybe a half million dollars to become a you know a high end professional, a lawyer, or a, you know a medical doctor. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be standards um, for you know to be a medical doctor or surgeon. Not at all. But the barriers of entry and just how difficult and how expensive it is, how time-consuming, certifications, licensures, all that sorts of stuff, it's ridiculous. Um, I think that's awesome. If you want to be a barista one day, a gardener the next day, 
maybe a, a carpenter, you know, over the course of a few years or maybe a few weeks. I don't know. But I think it would be awesome. Uh, part of what uh, Adam Smith, the father of capitalism and free markets and all that kind of nonsense, um, he had mentioned um, the division of labor um, as being a good thing because, you know, it's it, a pin factory. If you ever read, read The Wealth of Nations, uh, he, he started with like a pin factory and he was like, you know, it'd be so difficult to for one person to mind mine the resources to make a pin and to, um, you know, uh, hammer it out and flatten it out and then, you know, mold it into a pin. You know, it could take an operation just for five or six pins, you know, could take you a month or so, you know, but in, in a pin factory, you know, the, the, the person has one job and, you know, maybe that's to hammer out the pin or mold it or whatever. I don't know how to even make a pin, but nonetheless, but what he said is, yeah, that's a good thing. Division of labor when you're trying to make a lot of um, widgets or whatever, what have you. But, um, you know, division of labor also makes human beings as stupid and ignorant as a person can be. You know, if we have this continued um, specialization and if you're in some factory on some assembly line and all you're doing all day long is making pins, you know, spending eight, ten hours a day for 50 years of your life making pins or whatever, tires or putting, you know, a door on a car, um, you're going to make human beings are going to be as stupid and ignorant as you could possibly be. I think it's a great thing to have different skill sets, to change your interests, to be interested in different fields, different jobs. And I think that's part of what, you know, the community um, can be about. You know, I think prior to capitalism, uh, most of these communities, uh, I think I've read some stuff on, um, what do they call it, uh, primitive communism. You know, some of these communities, villages, um, even the households, they were pretty much autonomous. They could do a little bit of everything. Maybe a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, certainly not heart surgeons and that kind of stuff. But I think it still would be beneficial to have specialized trades, you know, but I think it would also be really cool to have a diverse skill set and do lots of different things. And I think it would be awesome in society to be able to change careers throughout your life because uh, interests and change, you know, what you want to do with your life changes. I mean, we're here for such a short period of time and sometimes you want to do different stuff and learn different things, you know? Well, imagine in your community that you wake up in the morning, you have your coffee and you look at your cell phone or your computer screen and there's just, uh, you know, multiple listings based on the things that you're interested in and have the ability to do. And then you say, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll show up here today. You know, it's not necessarily so much specialization as far as mobilization. What do you think about um, the... What do you think about like hierarchies? We talked about like neither of us. Um, I consider myself an anarchist. I I like some stuff about communism. I like socialism. These are different ideologies. They're similar, but maybe a little bit different. The thing I think what I see and think about with communism is like centralized economies, centralized management, the red bureaucracy, commissar class. You know, uh, a group of people above others. You know, in, in a highly hierarchical, hierarchical you know society in a very violent state, you know, the Soviet Union was very violent, um, to its own citizens, but also to its enemies and other countries and whatnot. So, um, what do you think about just general hierarchies in society? Maybe this, uh, this solar punk stuff. Um, what do you think about like government leadership roles, responsibilities, all that kind of stuff? What do you think about the different ideologies and how do they kind of relate? I like, 
anarchism. I don't like, I think a classless society is possible. I like decentralization and um, I like, um, you know, bottom up leadership, not top down kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, to some extent, you know, a limited form of hierarchy may be necessary. However, you know, if you're talking about small communities, you don't need, you know, that much hierarchy. If you're talking about something like across states and and continents, you you might need a little bit more. But uh, each community should have a certain amount of autonomy, uh, where you know when it comes when it comes to you know legal things, uh, you, you might need some higher hierarchy. You'll certainly need standards and roles, but uh, you know today we have way too much of all of that. Let's go to your um, namesake and big money now. Let's talk about the political system right now in this country. Uh, the okay. last presidential election was like, it took, four, I think it was $14 billion. So I just broke it in half, about $7 billion to run for president in this country. The big money in politics, that's probably the root of all of our evils in society. Well, um, most of our legislators spend... You know, I, I don't know the exact figure, but uh, it's it's been said somewhere around 75% of their time is spent uh, raising funds, fundraising. The minute you win your election, you start campaigning and raising money for that next election almost immediately from the time the last vote is cast. It seems like how our system works. You're already campaigning and asking for more money the second you win, win the next term, you know? And then you're beholden to the people that that give you money, and the people that give the most money are the big corporations. Before Reagan, there used to be some pretty strict finance campaign finance laws, and Reagan tore those down. And they've been, you know, and then after Citizens United, they were com- almost completely torn down. Uh, if we just had all the elections from city council, you know, mayor or whatever, all the way up to the president, if they were all publicly funded and you limited lobbying, our leaders would represent the people rather than the corporations and the rich. And I always push push back on this. Um, I don't think we need leaders. I think what we really need is real working class representation. So I'm all about that. Um, I think that uh, leadership roles or whatever responsibilities should be shared within the local community. It almost should be like kind of a, a um, uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's an inconvenience, you know, like you have to go and you have to get out of your daily routine and and go to wherever we're going to vote on something. Like I'm, I'm in favor of like federations, like loosely affi- affiliated states and communities that you know maybe get together and and vote on laws and policies and that kind of stuff. But ultimately, I, I like self-governing communities, and hopefully, you know, we can kind of be autonomous, you know, in this community and kind of govern ourselves. But yeah, I, I think there has to be some sort of organization, maybe some governing body, something like that. And I think those responsibilities should be shared. So that, you know, you're just getting a normal person that's going to go and vote wherever this 
central institution or government uh, goes to vote on things, you know, maybe I'm, I'm kind of thinking maybe like the European Union, but even more loosely affiliated in, you know, smaller countries. Like, I, I think ultimately in the long run, this is pie in the sky stuff, but I think ultimately, you know, I'd like these nation states to dissolve. I, I believe Marx, I'm not a Marxist, but I believe a, a stateless, classless society is possible. But, you know, I think if you just have normal people, real working class representation and, and, and responsibilities within the local community being shared, you know, you're not going to get corruption. You're going to get people that are going to vote and their interests are the same as yours, you know, so you can equally share those roles with the community. In a capitalist system, you know, you have a group of people, a fraction of 1%, uh, making all the decisions, buying all the political leaders. Uh, and a lot of times what they do is they... They split up the money 50-50. They give to both parties so that no matter what, um, whoever wins the election, they're going to have an ally in there. And that's the problem with, first off, political parties. I, I, have a, I have a problem with political parties in principle. I don't want any political parties. I'm, I'm not much of a joiner. I'm not a Green member. Uh, I used to vote Democrat, but now, you know, I, I just consider myself completely independent, a far leftist, an anarchist. Um, but I, I, I haven't abandoned electoral politics. Like, I think if we abandon electoral politics in this country, the Republicans are going to thank us. You know, they're going to they're going to continue to gerrymander and continue to win elections with a fraction of a vote. You know, a lot of times they don't even get the majority, but yet they still win because of the gerrymandering. So I don't think we should abandon electoral politics. But what I think we really need is like you like your namesake. And big money in politics, and what we really need is real working class representation. I think in our Congress, it's like a vast majority are um, lawyers, and from these um, lobbying firms, and from these uh, corporate law firms. If you go to other countries around the world, I've looked at uh, Germany. You know, they have like teachers, um, professors, um, you know, accountants, bankers. I'm sure they have lawyers, but. Um, you know, doctors, just, it's a mix. They actually have people with real professions, you know, so I think that is important to get real working class representation. For example, when we um, vote on, like, Supreme Court, you know, and it's always, what law school did they go to? Did they go to Yale or Harvard? Like, who cares? I'd much rather her a, 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 um, a public defender that graduated at the bottom of his class in a state school get in there than some Ivy League silver spoon um, elitist, you know what I mean? Well, in Athens, Greece, they used to uh, choose their representatives by lottery. They would pick the names quite literally out of a hat. Yeah, I don't mind that. I did look at some Athens, Greece stuff, and only like 20% of the population were even um, citizens. So that's what they did in terms of limiting their democracy. They limited who were, you know, citizens. And I think it was, you know, rich males, as it is and seems like, you know, in most of these classical societies, obviously we've expanded the franchise to include women, minorities, all that sorts of stuff, which is great. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that's a decent idea. Um, then the question would be, you know, who is, um, you know, who's a citizen? You know, and I guess it would be people over the age of 18 that were born here, essentially. Um, but I'm all for expanding the, the franchise to include everyone, maybe even, I don't know, 12-year-old, 13-year-olds, who knows? Uh, I don't see why 18 is some arbitrary number. You know, we could make it certainly younger if we wanted to. Um, and I think, you know, the, the younger population they have a lot more sick than us because they're going to be around longer. And right now we are killing the planet. And each, um, you know, article I read about climate crises 
and global warming and all that kind of stuff, it, it's worse than the last, you know, and it's really, really bad. The last one I read, it just keeps getting worse with the mass extinctions, the temperatures on the rise, the changing of the climate, the ecosystems. It's, it's bad news. So I think younger people um, should have a vote in the future because we're going to be leaving them a planet and a lot of problems, you know, that they're going to have to clean up. I agree there, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure that I would go quite as young as 12 or 13. I was uh, just throwing out a number. I, I don't think 18 is set in stone. You know, whether you want to be 16, 17, I don't know. But that's if you read about the the right, they're always trying to limit democracy. Like I read an article. I don't know who it was. Was it uh, was it the great Marge Marjorie? Was the Georgia senator? I think she said let's ex- let's uh, raise the, the voting age to 25. So I think the opposite. On the left, I want to keep expanding it. If they want to move it to 25, I want to move it to 15. You know what I mean? Yeah, I understand that. So anyways, let's go. Um, where else do you want to go? Let's go to a little bit of Washington politics. I don't know. You said you weren't too big into it. But uh, what's it like in the Pacific Northwest? Um, are there uh, – what's kind of the big industries? Is it still – like timber is that pretty pretty big is there is the climate crisis affecting the climate are there wildfires there just uh i haven't really spoken to anyone i don't know it's been a while from washington state what's the political landscape what's the landscape like there what's the climate like there um have you lived there most of your life i'll start out with the climate you know the the climate's probably the best in the country and you know i almost hate to say this because everybody will want to come move here but uh, we're uh, in Western Washington. Uh, we're nestled between the Pacific Ocean and the Cascade Mountains, and we have milder winters than most all of the country, and we have milder summers than most of the country. Um, we hardly ever get above ninety degrees in the summertime, and rarely at that. And in the winter time. We might get two weeks of snow. Um, some some winters we don't get any snow. I'm I'm coming from uh, uh, South Texas. I think we had 90 plus days over 90 degrees here. Uh, it was a hot summer, really really hot summer. Actually, it might even been 100 degrees, but uh, yeah, pretty crazy. What's going on with? Um, are you into like Seattle politics? I know there was uh, they were raising the the minimum wage there. I know in Oregon, didn't they have like these um, self-governing little communities where they didn't let cops in and that kind of stuff? Is that kind of going on in Washington state as well? Is there any like left-wing politics and political movements going on there that maybe we're not hearing about uh, national news wise? Well, they had, they had that, uh, you know, for a while during the black lives matter protests, they had, a small uh, area in Seattle that was had declared themselves autonomous, and uh, the city allowed them to do that for a while, I suppose. But uh, I think that's over now. Okay. Uh, there is in Seattle um, someone in government, and I'm not exactly sure what the position is. Who uh, outright claims to be a communist? Um, but, uh, you know, mostly the state is mostly blue with uh, pockets of red influence. 
Yeah, I'm from I'm from Pennsylvania originally. Uh, I think there's a joke from Pennsylvania um, about Pennsylvania. You have Pittsburgh on one side of the state, Philadelphia on the other, and in the middle you have Alabama. So very very right wing in the uh, rural areas of uh, Pennsylvania. So I'm sure um, that's kind of what we have though in this country. We have two political parties. You know, we have I actually should say one one party, the business party, with two factions. And of those two factions, we kind of have like more of a rural, um, you know, political party. And the people in that, the Republicans tend to be a little bit more wealthy and they're just pro-business, pro-all business, pro-big business, pro-everything. And then you have the Democrats um, who are maybe more catered to like, it seems like finance and Wall Street, big pharma, um, the health and pharmaceutical industries and um, health insurance, um, you know, I guess just the really big businesses and big sectors. Whereas Republicans are all businesses, especially oil and energy. Um, but the, really the only thing that differentiates them is, um, you know, like tends to be well, a little bit better rhetoric, I guess, you know, from the, from the, from the Democrats, um, the Republicans, they are a lot more religious fundamental. So they, or at least that's what they pretend, you know, and every once in a while they throw some red meat to their base on like abortion or whatever other stuff. Um, but Ultimately, you know, we have a, a rural business party of the Republicans and more of a city uh, business party with maybe more uh, professionals, business professionals, uh, the Democrats. But, of course, the Democrats abandoned um, the working class decades ago. I'm just kind of reading on this stuff. I've, I haven't been around quite as long as you have, um, Keith. But uh, maybe you could talk about the two parties. I mean, are there big differences? Have you seen much change over in your lifetime. I've really only been studying politics now for, I don't know, 20, 25 years, um, at least deeply. Uh, I think you've, you've probably been in the, into it a little bit longer and, and watching it a little bit longer. Can you give a rundown of how you see the, the two-party system here? It's like a one-party state with two factions. And do you see any differences between the Republicans and the, and the Democrats? Are they major differences? Are they very small, micro? Well, I mean, there used to be a difference. And, uh, you know, I think, once again, when the campaign finance laws broke down and the Democrats realized uh, how much money is available through big business, uh, they abandoned the people. Do you prefer uh, the Democrats to the Republicans? I mean, what's your I think I think in a swing state, you should probably vote for the least bad I've mentioned I don't think it's it's a good idea to abandon electoral politics, but I think major okay, change well, is going to it's going to come outside the system, the political system. You know, I used to I like to quote this: "If voting could change anything, they would have already made it illegal." So, what's your what's your view of voting and that kind of thing? Um, do you still vote? Do you still think it's important? I don't vote for Republicans or Democrats uh, typically. Uh, I'll vote third party wherever I can. Yeah, and I think that's. I mean, I think it's wise in a in a um, in a, in a safe uh, blue state. What about if if you were in a swing state? Would you would you change your vote? I think in a swing state, you should probably vote for one of the two mainstream parties, just because one of those two are probably going to win. You know, unless something deeply it, it changes in our society. It doesn't matter if either one of them win. You know, it's it's. I think that it's better to vote for what you want and not get it yeah. than to vote for what you don't want and get it. Yeah. Yeah, I can dig it. Let's, what about your, so you said you kind of view yourself uh, a communist, 
um, maybe a little bit of anarchism, some socialism uh, in your political ideologies and what you subscribe to. Can you talk about that a little bit? How do you see the differentiate? How do you see those you know kind of ideologies differentiating differentiating themselves from one another? Well, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about capitalism. Yes. Okay. Because everybody in this country operates within the system of capitalism, but they don't understand capitalism. You know, you you talk to the average person, and if you ask them, are you a capitalist, they'll probably tell you yes. But they're not. I used to say that um, maybe even three years ago, five years ago, I used to say, yeah, I'm a capitalist. But then I just realized, wow, I'm a exploited worker with uh, Stockholm syndrome. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, it's it's like, first of all, so many of this country doesn't even know what being a capitalist is. And they don't understand that there are two classes. They think, oh, everybody in this country is a capitalist. But they're not. The capitalist is somebody who owns something or controls people and makes money off of it. You know, and that's maybe... 10, 12% of the country. And of of those people, only, you know, a really minute percentage is doing really well. But, uh, you know, for 80%, 90% of the country, we're wage earners, we're working class. Some of us are much better off than others, but uh, still working class. And some aren't even in the working class. They're just abject poverty. Yeah, yeah. But that's all necessary to support capitalism. Yeah, I think the way the system is structured, we can't all be business owners. We can't all be billionaires. It doesn't matter how hard you work, you know. Uh, Of course, you know, billionaires and CEOs, they don't work 300 plus times, you know, the average worker, which is ridiculous, even though that's what their pay is. I do like co-ops, um, like Mondragon, where they have like wage ceilings and, um, you know, the, the highest earner can't make more than like five to seven, maybe nine times the lowest paid worker, which I think is a good thing. I think we can definitely make capitalism a little bit more benign, you know, with like labor unions and that sort of stuff. Uh, but what, what I like about socialism is how it's defined is, you know, workers owning and controlling the means of production. And I think that that is the long-term goal. I think, again, unions are great. Uh, making capitalism a little bit more benign is a good thing. Like, we can we can demand the king be more, um, you know, to be less harsh to, to us, you know. Uh, and I think all we did with um, capitalism was replace kings and queens with CEOs and corporate executives and, and that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, we can beg the king to be more benign and less harsh uh, or beg the CEO to be a little bit more um, egalitarian and, and sharing wages. Um, or we could replace the king and queen or the corporate executive or the corporation, which I think is a private tyranny, and I think it should be dissolved, again, maybe replaced with co-ops and, um, you know, a structure, a democratic structured organization um, that, you know, profits are shared equally. You know, I think that, uh, you know, the community should be involved with the workplace, and I think the workers should be involved with the workplace, and I don't think we need these 
hierarchies, you know, to tell us what to do. No gods, no masters. I like to say that at the end of every podcast. So I'm, I'm an anarchist through and through, and I really like uh, the Spanish Revolution. So some of that stuff, um, that's where Mondragon's based in Spain. Some of that stuff's been tried before, and it's worked well. In fact, co-ops are much more successful in the long run. If you follow up with the co-op uh, five years in, in it after it's formed, it's much more likely to be around than a traditional um, you know, corporate hierarchy. Yeah, I, I, uh, a lot of the, um, well, as if a small business wants to start up, you need uh, about like $30,000 to even have a shot at being successful. Uh, and even even so, a bigger corporation can outprice you and, you know, just has all the market forces that can easily shut you down. And that's part of what the corporate system is all about, too. If a co-op is successful, especially in a, uh, a, a sector of the economy, a corporation in that sector of the economy is going to see that and buy it up. They don't want, they don't want um, the model out there that, hey, workers can do this, our, we, can, we can do this ourselves, you know, without bosses, without hierarchies, without corporations and stockholders, you know. So a lot of times these co-ops, especially the ones that are very successful, they get bought out by the big guys for class warfare purposes. Well, that's kind of like, you know, whenever socialism is successful anywhere in the world, the U.S., you know, sends in the CIA and there's a, there's a revolution or a coup or something like that to shut them down. If if socialism and communism just didn't work on its own, they could just sit back and watch it fail and laugh. But it's not that way. They have to spend a huge amount of taxpayer money to make sure it doesn't succeed because it threatens their system. No question about it. But yeah, that's <laughs> that's definitely the way it's been. Um, anytime there's a slightly centrist or slightly left-leaning government um, that wants to take economic development into their own hands. Uh, when a government gets in there um, that are, you know, more egalitarian, um, that talk about things like land reform and socialist policies like uh, public education, health care, that kind of stuff, those that think the resources of a country belong to the people of that country instead of U.S. corporations – that's when, you know, the CIA and that's when the U.S. military um, goes in there and, um, you know, and it has in the past, especially in Latin America. Uh, it's been under the boot of the um, United States for centuries now. Um, you know, essentially create an environment for a coup, overthrow that government, and then put in a puppet government uh, in its place. Um, and you can, Now, you know, South, South America and Africa recently have been throwing off the uh, United States' That's right. yoke. That's right. No question. Yeah, the last, uh, what, 30 years or so? Um, yeah, that sounds, that's, that's definitely a good thing, you know. Um, what do you think about, well, let me go one more thing here, and then we can kind of maybe go into the political landscape right now, maybe talk a little bit about Israel and Palestine. But, um you know, another colonial project going on right now. It's almost complete. Um, Palestine's almost completely wiped off the map. Uh, and Gaza, certainly, uh, if you've seen some of the certainly aftermath, has some, there's not much left. has some parallels to what we've done. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No question. And we do that. 
we do that. We're, we're, we're responsible. U.S. taxpayers are responsible for Israel's genocide right now. Um, Israel would not exist without U.S. Um, taxpayer um, support, uh, military support, ideological support, political support. Uh, Israel would not exist without the United States backing it. Uh, it's essentially the United States and Britain. I'm sorry. Yeah, the United States and Britain. But, you know, basically you got two lieutenants, um, two loyal lieutenants for the United States. And that's that's uh, Israel and the UK. In uh, Israel, um, the reason um, Israel is uh, receiving hundreds of billions of dollars of taxpayer money um, since World War II is because uh, Israel is essentially a military outpost so that the United States can use it as a strategic um, uh, you know, center to control the world's oil supply. And even if the United States was independent on energy, uh, it would still um, want to control the world's oil supply because of political and power interests. Um, but I want to go to, um, we talked a little bit about um, how uh, if, if socialist governments weren't, we're always going to collapse if the if those in power weren't frightened about a socialist government and its success, they would just let it fail, you know. But of course, they're um, concerned. And they want it to they want it to fail, and they use force to ensure that it fails, um, or economic warfare, terrorism, whatever. Um, but unions, the same kind of thing. Uh, again, I talked about how I'd like to reform um, capitalism, but um, you know, I think uh, unions are a good thing. But ultimately, I want workers to own and control the means of production in the long run, for sure. That's what I want. But, um, you know, unions, there's like when there's a threat of union formation in a corporation, uh, instead of just paying workers more, you know, uh, they, they, they pull out all the stops, all the political moves, um, shutting down union, illegal firing of union organizers. Uh, and then they spend like millions, if not billions of dollars combined on anti-union propaganda. And if they just wanted to, I think, pay workers more, it would be a whole heck of a lot cheaper and less time-consuming, uh, you know, pay workers a living wage. But they do that for, do it for class warfare purposes. You know, there's always this anti-union propaganda campaign. I mean, we saw it from Starbucks and, you know, UAW. I think they just uh, struck and got a good deal. So good for them. Uh, but yeah, this is, this is a, it was like what they call it, like the hot union summer, but there's a lot of, um, you know, good labor, um, resistance and organization going on in the United States right now. And I'm very, very much happy to see it. But again, yeah, I mean, for, for class warfare purposes, they would rather spend millions and maybe even billions of dollars on anti-union propaganda and, um, you know, all kinds of shenanigans than to actually just pay workers. It would be a whole lot easier and cheaper just to pay workers more. You know, like they they will spend um, far more money on trying to put down the union than they will than they would have if they just wanted to pay the workers, you know? Well, I'll certainly agree. Unions are great. However, you know, it's, it's just something to rein in the capitalists a little bit. Yep. There's no, there's no bridge from being in a union to owning the means of production. There's no pathway there. I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. What do you think about um, what do you think about communism? So I'm very critical of the Soviet Union. My favorite philosopher is Chomsky. He's read all kinds of books, um, anti-American books, at least the American power interests and, and and whatnot. But he's also banned in the Soviet Union and Russia because of his critiques on their governments, which is 
why I think, you know, he's, he's on the right path. Because as an anarchist, I hate all forms of government, whether it's here in the United States in this, um, you know, corporate state nexus that we have going on, or whether it's the fascist states in Europe um, in the 1930s and 40s, or whether it's um, the Soviet Union in the Cold War and, and what in the aftermath, um, you know, following World War II and those two, the, 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 the dipolar powers, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union. So um, what do you think about communism, though, in practice and in theory? What, what's it all about? Okay, well, you know, like socialism, it's, you know, it's the abolition of capitalism. But the, the difference between socialism and communism, uh, you know, and I've read theory, uh, if you just want to break it down into a soundbite, Socialism is the workers owning the means of production, which, you know, can be on a small scale, large scale, whatever. Uh, and communism is abolition of private property, not personal property. And that's another thing that people don't understand is, you know, you hear the story of, oh, they want to take away your toothbrush. You know, that's personal property. And that's not what communism is about. Private property, it's more like the means of production, like industry, factories, that kind of stuff? Exactly. Okay, so like your house is your personal property, but if you have a rental, then that's private property. And, you know, private property is always, having private property is always a means of exploitation. Totally, yeah. So what do you think about property? Where, where do you fall? I mean, you think that people should have personal property. What about the factories? What about, um, you know, public housing, um, you know, government buildings? I mean, what do you think that there should be like this large central state with some central planned economies? Um, do you think of more on the anarchist lines and anarcho-syndicalism? Are you somewhere in the middle? And what's your thoughts on property generally? Okay, I am on the more on the anarchist side than, you know, the central government side. Um, and as far as, you know, personal property is, is a good thing. It's good to have your space. But when it comes to the means of production, the factories, the utilities, the resources, that should all belong to the people. So you think, we, we talked about this in the, in the call prior to the show, the evils of capitalism, uh, private ownership over the means of production, you think that that's maybe the biggest um, evil of the whole capitalist system and the exploitation over what I call them, uh, you know, and I'm included, wage slaves, you know, wage slavery. Essentially, we're an army of wage slaves no. working and renting ourselves to, the, to a master for the means of subsistence just to get by. What do you think about the evils of capitalism, private ownership, and, and that kind of system? That's where you, is that where you think the biggest problem is? And do you, I guess how would we solve these problems? A more egalitarian distribution of resources and um, materials and, and whatnot? I guess how do we get there? Well, okay. Well, there's. Oh, I'm glad you asked that question. There's three ways to get there, okay? And... One way is, you know, like I said, we were talking a little bit about solar punk and the solar punk movement. Uh, that starts out with small communities. Then you have uh, adjoining small communities, which forms a larger community. Uh, that's a ground-up uh, way, nonviolent way of doing it, as long as uh, it's allowed. 
Now, the second way would be revolution. And the third way is uh, rebuilding from the ashes of, you know, a, a hypothetical World War III. Uh, like Star Trek, the Star Trek universe, they are a classless, moneyless society, but in their, uh, in their history, they rebuilt from the ashes of, you know, world destruction. What about like money? I'm actually doing a podcast right now on the banking system. It's very corrupt. Uh, even I, I tweeted today, even just the idea of making money from money or on money, you know, charging interest and these exorbitant interest rates, credit cards, student loan debts, 30 year mortgages. Essentially, these banks are making money from the process of money or playing magic tricks with money. Uh, and that's a lot of the funding. That's what got Obama in the White House, the, the banking system. Uh, and essentially they were bailed out and rewarded. Uh, and the same people that crashed the economy was were chosen to um, you know rebuild that economy. What do you think about the banking system generally and money generally? Uh, I think we probably need some medium of exchange, but I'm all about like publicly owned banks. I, I would get rid of these private banks with these um, you know, for-profit motives. I don't think they do much. Uh, I think they're essentially uh, leeches. You know, I think they do more harm than good to uh, to the economy. I think that they are predatory. Well, they are predatory, and that's by design. Uh, they make money off of money. In fact, money itself in this day and age is created uh, on a spreadsheet as yep. debt. So, yep. You know, if you if you take out a $100,000 loan uh, at 10%, you know, and I'm just using general numbers, you know, you owe, right away, you own the, you owe the bank, you know, $110,000. There is not enough money in the world to cover the world debt. It's impossible. I actually read this uh, out of all the money in the UK, only 3%, I believe, only 3% actually exists in physical form. The rest of it, 97% is on a spreadsheet on a computer somewhere. Just some keystrokes. It's created out of thin air. Um, what do you think about, let's go to the media. Um, I wanted to talk about this as we talked about how to transform, you know, campaign financing and get the money out of politics. What a lot of countries do in Europe, um, they give politicians and those that are running, uh, you know, having a campaign, free airtime. You know, everyone gets a half hour or an hour, you know, leading up to the election so that we don't need, you know, the seven billion dollars it takes to run for president, you know, in either of these two mainstream parties. I think that's a great thing. Like the public airwaves, like give give the little guy a chance, give everyone a chance. You know, it's not just the person with the biggest purse. Um, I looked up this quote earlier. I like it. Uh, I forget the <laughs> I forget the, um, the the it's a campaign. uh I think it's something Mackey. I forget. I forget his name, but he was essentially a campaign manager uh, in the um, 1900s. They asked him, you know, what's it take to win an election in the United States? And it says it takes two things. Uh, the first is money, and I forgot what the second one is. You know, but I'm just thinking of ways to get the money out of politics. You know, and I think it, I think um, that's a great thing. You know, the media, the propaganda, the mainstream, the corporate media, the agenda-setting media. Uh, if we had public airwaves and um, actually tried to give people, um, you know, a half hour just to talk about what's 
their platform, what's their political platform, what are they going to do when they get into um, positions of power, that would be a great thing. Instead, we get this like watered down marketing campaign, um, they're telling us a bunch of lies nobody believes, you know. So I think it would be a great thing to give everyone, you know, public access and equal access to the airwaves and maybe an hour or a half hour where they can maybe a public public can ask questions about what they're going to do. I, I just think it wouldn't take a lot just to just to get more FaceTime. You know, we see we see these politicians and more and more of their faces, but behind closed doors, we have no idea what they're doing, you know. Well, if you gave everybody that was running a certain amount of money and said, "This is this is your this, this is, is your campaign," yeah, this is it. And you know, donations were not would not be allowed. Lobbying would not be allowed. You know, if if one candidate ran out of money and needed more money, uh, if it got approved, the other candidate would receive the exact same amount of money. You know. That would that would make it fair in the system, but that would also take away the big influence out of politics. I think that's a great idea. I think there's millions and millions of ideas. We just got to try different stuff. Unfortunately, those in power want to conserve the system as it is um, in the, the two-party people, system. The people, the people that control the system that we operate in are also the ones that are benefiting off of the system as it's written. That's right. It, they get to police themselves. Yep. What about the environmental crisis? It seems like there's a lot of uh, leftists and people went to green uh, in Washington state. It's a beautiful state. What's it called? Is it called the evergreen state? It is. So, uh, yeah, beautiful place. I've never been there, but I've seen some documentaries on it. I want to travel there one day. Uh, Seattle looks awesome. I used to have a friend out there that lived there. Um, but what, what about the environmental crisis, the climate crisis? How can we solve it? Do you have any ideas on that? I think, uh, you know, make people uh, in control of the Earth's resources instead of a small, you know, fraction of 1% that control the corporations. Like, I think the commons, you know, the, the resources of the world belong to all of us, you know, including the animals. We need to be able to share this wonderful, um, amazing planet um, with the with the life that's here, the animals. We can't just be focused on um, this insane system that is based on, uh, you know, eternal, forever, perpetual growth on a planet with finite resources. This is going to run us all into the ground. This is going to kill this amazing planet and all the and we're probably going to take all the life with us you know all the animals maybe the maybe some insects will be left when 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 we um go out in some nuclear apocalypse at least if uh world war three happens and it seems like it's getting closer and closer every day with what's going on in russia ukraine uh and gaza but uh anyways i digress let's get back to the environmental crisis keith and big money now how are we going to solve that well if you're going to solve the environmental crisis uh you almost hit it on the nail on the head there uh you pretty much have to get rid of capitalism because capitalism does every anything it can for a profit motive and saving the planet is not profitable no extracting is what's profitable and you can't grow forever on a planet that is not growing forever with you yeah, totally. I think um, you know we need to, we need to 
we need a new system. Uh, capitalism is incapable of meeting even the most basic of human needs. Uh, and yeah, you know, saving the planet isn't profitable. Terraforming Mars and the billionaire space race is. But uh, I think if they ever get there, they're not taking us with us. So this is the only planet I'll ever know and live on. So this is the one I want to save. So speaking of which, let's transition because we talked a little bit about this too. Um, what about uh, Star Trek? Interstellar travel, sci-fi, all that kind of stuff. The universe. Um, is that of interest to you? I think we talked a little bit about this uh, in the pre-call. Um, I, I find it fascinating. I love thinking about it, daydreaming about it. I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. Um, but, yeah, I think that that kind of stuff is possible. Black holes, wormholes, all that kind of stuff. It's fascinating. Our little place in the universe. Um, what do you think What do you think about it? Uh, and do you think, um, you know, it's possible that human beings could ever even live, leave the solar system in the, I don't know, in the hundreds of generations, hopefully, that come after us? Well, it certainly is possible. But, you know, once again, with capitalism, it's, okay, it's more of the cyberpunk dream of the capitalists than the Star Trek dream of, you know, of the rest of us. Didn't you um, say, weren't we talking a little bit, wasn't uh, Star Trek a little bit more socialist or communist? I don't, I didn't watch any of the Star okay, Trek stuff. So they, so they were a cashless, you know, they were a moneyless society, okay? And they didn't, they were basically an anarchist uh, communist society. Uh, they had some form of hierarchy with Starfleet, uh, but as but on the planet itself, uh, it was almost borderless. It was, you know, the Earth was united. They didn't have money. You you showed up for your job, or you know, you did your job based on what your interests or abilities were. And uh, the the point of the realm in Star Trek was your contribution to society. It wasn't, you know, how much you could exploit those that were under you or anything else. It was, you know, if you did your job well, you were rewarded. You know, you got prestige or, you know, some form of power. But it wasn't about the power it was about you know advancing the society and being good people i even wonder if the, the themes that you're talking about again i was never i've never been a huge sci-fi nerd i love science you know the universe and stuff but i'm not so much into fiction generally um but yeah that sounds very interesting to me i almost wonder if those types of themes and concepts would even be able to get on the airwaves today you know it seems like none of that stuff's ever talked about well you know, it's Gene Roddenberry, the creator of, of Star Trek. Uh, he was quite a visionary. Uh, there are plenty of other sci-fi uh, themes out there. You know, Star Wars being the uh, the big one that's in competition. Uh, Star Wars is kind of more of the cyberpunk theme where yeah. you've got this big evil empire that a small group of rebels are trying to fight against. Um, and even, even in, uh, the one season show called Farscape, uh, you had the central Alliance, uh, which was the big hierarchy 
top down. And then you had the outer planets that didn't want to have anything to do with it. And there was a big, you know, skirmish there. And you were either part of the alliance, the central alliance, or you were just a ragtag planet off somewhere. <laughs> so speaking of Star Wars, let's get back to um, reality here. Real war. It's obviously, you know, going on. Again, I kind of alluded to in the Ukraine, as well as what's genocide, as I see it, in Gaza. But generally, the United States has been at war since 1776. Um, the military-industrial complex, uh, the massive amounts of money. I think we've almost outspent the rest of the world combined on military. You had spent some time in the military. What's your thoughts? How about your time in the military? And generally, how do you feel about the military-industrial complex? And you were just kind of a cog in the wheel during your time in the military? Or, you know, what, what was your experience and how did it leave you? Well, you know, when I was when I was in the military, I was rather young and quite quite a bit naive. Um, you know, I had some good times. There was, you know, some good camaraderie among the people that I served with. Uh, but uh, you know, towards the end, it it got a little bit uh, too political, and you know, things things were changing fast and you know i i spent a good 8 years in the military but that was enough <laughs> was it, were you part uh, of vietnam or any conflicts what was going on when you were in the military um well okay there was some conflicts starting up uh, about the time that i got out uh the the first gulf war desert shield um is about when i got out and the thing is, you know, my views have changed a little bit, uh, and the military is is another arm of capitalism in a way. It's colonialism. It's it's most of our military is to protect uh, resources that corporations wanted to seize from other countries, and. By keeping a great percentage of our population poor, it's easy to get military recruits. You know, you promise them free health care, free education, uh, this, that, and the other, you know, three squares and a cot. But, uh, you know, it's once again, it's just preying on the poor that the system itself created. They're not going into the rich suburbs to recruit, are they? No, they are not. In fact, military recruiters are most active in the poorest places in our country. And that's that's one of the reasons I think, well, first off, for like um, healthcare, we don't have a functioning healthcare system in the United States. We have a scandal. Uh, but one of the reasons that we have this scandal is, you know, they tie um, employment to healthcare, making workers easy, more easily to exploit. Uh, and yeah, they, they recruit poor and um, disadvantaged for the military. Uh, and one of the recruiting tools um, is uh, affordable education or college, you know, pay, paid for college and uh, military benefits, maybe a pension, that sort of stuff. Obviously, if you're coming from a rich family, you know, a couple, uh, what, thousand dollars later in life as a pension is not going to be very meaningful to you, you know. But maybe from uh, a poor, disadvantaged um, person from an inner city, yeah, that's that would be great. You know, that's a little bit of that's security and stability. So th th those things, um, you know, matter to people. Uh, during your time, I think we talked a little bit about 
Um, you said something about the politics, so I'd like to hear what's what's the politics of the military. What's the hierarchy all about? In our pre-call, you said something about um, in the military they don't want creative thinkers. You know, they don't want um, people that uh, problem solve. They basically want people to just kind of follow orders. Isn't that right? Oh yeah, that's that's definitely true. Uh, as a smart person in the military, unless you are, you know, unless you're a college graduate and going, you know, uh, going. Th- in as an officer and advance through the ranks, um, a smart person in the military is, that's not a good place for them. <laughs> so I guess the last couple of things here, let's just go to some silly questions and we'll finish up. Got about 10 more minutes, maybe. Uh, you're coming from the Pacific Northwest, a lot of Bigfoot sightings there. Is Bigfoot running around out there? Have you seen them? Ah, uh, well... You know, it's a myth that we like to perpetuate, but, uh, you know, I'm rather skeptical about it. Uh, <laughs> UFOs, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of UFOs either, but, uh, you know, intelligent life might be out there in space. It might not. I don't know. But, Is there any intelligent uh, life on this planet? <laughs> there is there is and unfortunately some of it is uh you know working menial jobs or yeah. maybe even buried under rubble because the system that we have doesn't let people express their creativity outside of the class or caste that they happen to have been born in no doubt um let's see here I got, uh, see if I can find a couple of questions here. I want to ask you, um, oh, oh, I just want to add one other thing. Uh, just <laughs> kind of a, kind of a effect is, you know, s- stupid people think they're smart and bad people think they're good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you, do you think we, uh, do you think we've ever been visited by UFOs or aliens? Well, if if they were seriously coming to visit us, they wouldn't be landing in some farmer's field uh, or making crop circles or, you know, ab- abducting somebody from the fringes. You know, if they wanted to seriously uh, visit us, they they would find a population center. But even if they didn't find a population center and they landed out on the fringes, they would make their way to the population center. Um, frankly, I'm skeptical. And Me if anybody too. ever was, if anybody ever was abducted, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson said, what you should do is take something from the ship so that you could prove that you had something that wasn't manufactured on earth. Yeah. Cause I guarantee you anything off in a spaceship that's manufactured on another planet or out in space is going to be so structurally and chemically different than anything that we have that it would prove it. I dig it. Uh, so steel stuff. You hear that out there? Steel stuff if you're abducted. <laughs> steel uh, stuff <laughs> from aliens. Um, what about um, revolution? I think we talked about it a little bit. Do you think revolution is possible? Do you think it's going to happen in our lifetime? Is it possible without violence? Or do you think the 
revolution will be uh, kind of a violent ordeal? Well, like I said, there was three ways to move beyond where we are. Uh, one is from the ground up, one is through revolution, and one's rebuilding from the ashes. Um, revolution is never bloodless, unfortunately. But, yeah. uh, I mean, you can... A revolution that is is bloodless is nothing more than a parade. <laughs> That's good. You're a philosopher. I like it. Uh, you have any theory on JFK? Who killed JFK? Well, I don't have in-depth knowledge of this subject, but, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure it was an inside job. You think so? I think so, but that's just my opinion. Last question I always like to uh, end on, what are we doing here on Earth? What gives you hope? What's the meaning of life? What do you want to accomplish during your finite time here? Well, you know, first of all, I, I don't necessarily think that life itself has to have meaning. Ooh, um, I like that. It, it, it doesn't. Uh, you know, it's not like you applied to be born. Uh, you know, your birth was a random accident. What your meaning is, is what you give your life. It doesn't have to be for any higher purpose or function. Uh, you know, I think happiness is a great thing, but happiness can't exist without sadness. You know, oh, I believe yeah. in kind of the yin and yang, you know, something can't exist without the opposite existing. So you like some Eastern philosophy stuff? That sounds like some Eastern philosophy right there. I've, there's, you know, I've studied Eastern philosophy for a while. Um, and, you know, a lot of it makes sense. One of the... I'll, I'll leave you with uh, a, a little story that I heard that uh, is with Eastern philosophy that makes a lot of sense. A guy approached a Buddhist monk with a sign that read, I want happiness. And the Buddhist monk took the sign and took a marker and he crossed off the I. He said, well, that's ego. Okay, that is a barrier to your happiness. And then he took the marker and crossed off want, is that's desire. And then he handed the sign back to the man and it just read happiness. I dig it. That's cool. I love Zen. Zen is one of my favorite things to read about. And uh, I think if you're thinking about Zen or trying to describe it, you're not Zen. You know what I mean? It's just kind of you just kind of have to, kind of have to like sit back and take it all in. That's that's being zen. So I like that. Just exist, you know. That doesn't. Everyone deserves to exist, and uh, I don't want to get too political the whole time. But I think the the Palestinians they they deserve the right to exist, and we're supporting okay, so, their genocide. So my basic core philosophy, and it took me a while to figure this out, but you know, every person has a life, has a story, has their own self okay every person deserves to have a life of dignity you know free from material struggles of you know poverty and and want and things like that um and my so my first core philosophy that i 
judge my viewpoints on is, you know, does this viewpoint contradict that every person deserves a life of dignity? And my second, my second concept is always stand with the oppressed. Heck yeah, for sure. Well, that's all I got here. Uh, end big money now. The stage is yours. Anything you want to promote? Where can people find you? Any projects you're working on or anything? Go ahead. The stage is yours. You got about uh, two minutes or so, and we'll wrap it up. Well, not really working on uh, any big projects right now. Uh, I my uh, my job is I'm a I'm a caregiver, and I have have somebody that I take care of, um, you know, the medical problems and things like that. And eventually, you know, I'd like to do a little bit of traveling, um, just basically trying to enjoy the time I have left, you know, while I can. All right, my friend, thanks for your time tonight. It was a pleasure. Uh, I really appreciated it. Thanks so much. Okay, I, hey, I also just want to uh, say that anybody interested should Google or look up uh, SolarPunk. I think it's a really great concept working from the ground up to create a, you know, socialist environment. Uh, and it's certainly more attractive than the dystopian cyberpunk that they're pushing down our throats. Join with others. We can do this. Absolutely. All right. Adios. Adios. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. Also want to thank my special guest and big money now, Keith, for a great discussion tonight on smashing capitalism and ending big money in politics. Again, I am your host, MC squared, no gods, no masters, I'm out.